Hello and welcome to the Respiratory Exchange podcast. I'm Rai Wake, Chairman of the Respiratory Institute at Cleveland Clinic. This podcast series of short, digestible episodes is intended for healthcare providers and covers topics related to respiratory health and disease. My colleagues and I will be interviewing experts about timely and timeless topics in the areas of pulmonary, critical care, sleep, infectious disease, and related disciplines. We will share information that will help you take better care of your patients today, as well as the patients of tomorrow. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Respiratory Exchange. I'm your host for today, Raid Dwake, Chairman of the Respiratory Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. And my guests today are Dr. Cindy Miranda, who is an infectious disease specialist with a focus on non-tuberculous mycobacteria, and she runs the granuloma delta group in the infectious disease department. And the other guest is Dr. Joseph Cabaza, who is a pulmonary specialist with a focus and interest on non-tuberculous mycobacteria as well. This is the topic of our today, non-tuberculous mycobacterial infections, and this is something that usually involves both infectious disease and pulmonary specialists. That's why we have them both for you today. Cindy and Joe, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm very excited about this. This is a very confusing topic to a lot of people, including even people like me who are specialists in pulmonary. They always like look for more help from the experts because it's not something we see very often. So it's good to have in a couple of physicians who really are focused on this as part of their practice. So to level set the field, can you just, Cindy, tell us when we say non-tuberculous mycobacterial infection or NTM, what are we talking about here? So NTMs, or as you said, non-tuberculous mycobacteria, it's just a type of bacteria. It is um, related to as the more popular mycobacteria, Mycobacterium tuberculosis. But these group of bacteria are not generally passed from person to person. It's not contagious. And it's usually more in the environment. So in soil, water, that's where we find these bacteria. So that's a good differentiator. TB is very infectious, of course, and very dangerous. You cannot be, you don't want to be around people with TB, but, you know, because that's something important, actually, for our physicians and uh, patients to know that it's not infectious. That's a good way to set the level set. Anything to add to that, Joe? Yeah, so it's really these family of mycobacteria. There's, you know, almost 200 species now, and it's really anything mycobacteria except for tuberculosis and leprosy, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and I think they cover our whole globe, water and soil, and these kind of 200 species. And that oftentimes, you know, can cause some confusion on cultures because then you might see some of the non-typical ones. And we'll get into some of that later because there are just a handful that predominantly cause pulmonary disease. I mean, those are the ones we generally focus on in clinical practice. So what I have here, can you just tell us uh, who should be tested for it? When do you suspect it and who should be testing for it? Yeah, so really anyone who has underlying pulmonary disease, anything where the normal clearance of secretions and mucus and bacteria might be impaired is going to be at risk of developing non-tuberculous mycobacteria lung disease. So I think about it most in people who have recurrent pneumonias. I and mean, that to me is, and I think in studies, that's been one of the top comorbidities seen in people with NTM lung disease, a history of recurrent pneumonia that responds to regular antibiotics. So these are not mycobacterial acute pneumonias, but having that NTM in the background, they form layers of, of slime inside of our windpipes, essentially. So those are what we call biofilms. They also live intracellular cellularly inside the alveolar macrophages. So they kind of just hang out and kind of slowly 
kind of brew, maybe cause some low-grade inflammation and not cause symptoms, but it makes people susceptible to regular pneumonias. So recurrent pneumonia is a big one for me. And anyone with a chronic cough or uncontrolled chronic lung disease, so recurrent COPD exacerbations, recurrent asthma exacerbations, these are people I'm always wondering, is there something brewing in their lower airways leading to this picture? But really anyone who has a pulmonary, any pulmonary disease, or even on inhaled corticosteroids, is someone who is, it should be in your differential if they run into symptoms or uncontrolled disease down the road. That's a lot of people. You know, I really, I'm thinking here now, everybody in my clinic looks like that and sounds like that. Is there a, like some, some uh, that higher level criteria? You really, you are, you are uh, actually proposing that we test or at least have a high suspicion for everybody in our clinics. Basically. I think we have to think about it earlier often. I'll tell you, when I came out of training and practice, I knew very little about NTM uh, and, and bronchiectasis. And when I first kind of took that career path where it really became a big passion of mine, it started by me starting to think about it more. So very early on, my most of my NTM patients were people I was already caring for who had COPD or asthma that I never thought about it in their differential. And I just started sending cultures and then I'd be capturing it. And so these were people under my nose for years. These were not new bronchiectasis referrals. They were not new NTM patients. These were people I was taken care of. And by developing that index of suspicion, I was able to catch many. You know, many of these patients, that, because many of us don't think about NTM, oftentimes there's a big delay from their first symptom until they actually get a diagnosis of NTM. And that delay can lead to progressive changes in the airways and worsening bronchiectasis. And of course, it can make it harder to cure once antibiotics are started. Wow. So, Cindy, any thoughts on that? That seems a lot um, of people, but in ID, you probably have a different view I, when you see them. Yeah. Yeah. So, I I agree with um, actually what Joe has said, especially those that have, let's say, bronchiectasis patients, COPD, frequent exacerbations that really don't get better on antibiotics, and it's one exacerbation after another. That's when you think about sending mycobacterial cultures specifically. We also think about NTM diagnosis and those, of course, with compatible symptoms like respiratory symptoms or systemic symptoms and patients who are also immunosuppressed and patients who are on like DNF-alpha inhibitors that might increase their risk for developing NTM disease. There is also a group of patients with no obvious risk factors, and this is uh, the Lady Windermere syndrome, which you've probably heard about, and these are typically postmenopausal women, tall slender with certain body habitus like uh, pectus excavatum and scoliosis. So we have seen NTM lung disease in these patients as well. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good, that's the classic example we learned in medical school and in, in training, but now obviously it's going beyond that. So the one thing I remember from a while back is like when you get the AFB results, uh, you know, the acid fast bacilli test, everybody kind of freaks out. And then it's not TB. They say, oh, don't worry about it. But the reality is we know now that you need to worry about it also. It's not just TB you need to worry about. So, you know, do you have to treat these you know, patients and how do you treat them? I can start with you. So, uh, again, as uh, Joe uh, point, pointed out, there are a lot of NTM species, like over 200. And just to point out, not all of them are significant or not all of them cause disease. And certainly not all of them cause specifically pulmonary infections. So, for example, you know, because there could be environmental contamination, 
that can be attributed to NTMs, especially if you just find it in one sputum. For example, like Mycobacterium gordonei, when we see that in cultures, it's usually not significant. However, the ones that we see in sputum cultures that we will think about treatment are Mycobacterium avium complex. So it's actually a it's complex because there's many different species in that group, but typically Mycobacterium avium complex, if we isolate that, Mycobacterium cansasii is another important non-tuberculous mycobacterial infection in the lung, and Mycobacterium obsessus. And then there's others like Mycobacterium sinopi. So when you see NTM in your cultures, you have to, one, really know, is this species important? Is this, should this species be treated? And then after that, you know, ATS, IDSA, they've come up with guidelines on how to treat NTM infections, particularly the ones that I've mentioned. And so they, there is a diagnostic criteria for this. First of all, you, you've got to have compatible clinical symptoms or systemic symptoms, which, as Joe had said, you know, persistent cough, sputum production, shortness of breath, fatigue, you know, for some, not as common as TB, you may have fever and weight loss in some patients. And then, of course, radiologic findings, which maybe Joe can, can uh, expound on in a little bit, such as one, of course, there's the cavitary lesions, which tend to progress more quickly. And then those with what we call the nodular bronchiectatic type of disease. And then the, the other criteria is meeting microbiologic criteria, meaning patients should have not just one, as, as you had said, having just one sputum culture positive for a significant mycobacteria is not diagnostic. You must have two sputum cultures that are positive for, for the organism. Or you could have one, a bronchial culture from a bronchial wash or lavage or a biopsy, which shows some granulomatous inflammation, AFB, and positive culture with it. So these guidelines are there to help us decide, you know, who meets criteria for diagnosis of these non-tuberculous uh, mycobacterial infections. Yeah, you know, as pulmonologists, we always think bronchoscopy, Joe. So do we need a bronchoscopy to make a diagnosis or how do you approach these patients? So hopefully patients are producing sputum, and I think a lot of our patients do have a productive cough. I think probably more than half of patients with NTM lung disease do have a productive cough, but there's a big chunk that don't. A lot of people have dry cough. A lot of people just present with nonspecific symptoms like fatigue, weight loss, you know, low energy without a single cough even. And that's why I think some of these nonspecific symptoms are part of why index of suspicion is low, because sometimes they don't always point to the thought that there could be a lung infection because there are no respiratory symptoms. So that index of suspicion is very important. But once you go down that path of trying to see if they meet the diagnostic uh, criteria, you know, the CAT scan becomes very helpful. And another thing that kind of leads to delay in diagnosis, which is something I've wanted to do an easy kind of quick study on, is a lot of these people with mild kind of you know, nodular bronchiectatic changes, these are just kind of small scattered tree and bud areas, maybe not significant bronchiectasis. Oftentimes, these are changes that aren't caught on an x-ray. So many of these patients do get an x-ray, even with chronic dry cough, and they have a clear x-ray. So when there is a clear x-ray, that has a lot of primary care doctors and pulmonologists thinking a chronic infection is less likely. But with persistent symptoms, I really recommend getting a CAT scan uh, because you'll be surprised how much of these changes you might uncover. 
And I'm someone who thinks about NTM all the time, almost uh, almost too much probably. And even just you know a year ago, I had a patient with mild asthma. Now, he's kind of had weird symptoms, largely controlled, but would have some vague chest pains and, and just had, just seemed a little bit off, clear x-ray, normal spirometry. But so I just wanted just to get a CAT scan because we had kind of exhausted everything. I just wanted to you know, see if it suggested any possible etiology to these vague symptoms. This is a lady I've been caring for for years, never thought about NTM. And we get a scan and she's got findings suggestive of, of NTM. So she does not produce sputum. But so if we wanted a diagnosis for those people, our two options are to get an induced sputum. And that's not available at, at as many places as I initially thought. And especially now post-COVID, there's less, you need specific negative pressure rooms to get that. But induced sputum is an option to get. But if people cannot get induced sputum, then a bronchoscopy would be needed to make that diagnosis, to try to reach that diagnostic criteria. And uh, Cindy had mentioned kind of the, the four more common types of uh, NTM pulmonary disease. But in, in North, and it kind of can from regions and continents, but in North America, about 80% of them are MAC. So MAC is oftentimes our big focus where a lot of the... Mycobacterium avium complex. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of the treatment guidelines and most of the studies are kind of centered around MAC just because that is what we most commonly see. But we, the guidelines do still use some of the you know, data for the other common species we see. But the diagnostic criteria does hold the same regardless of species. You want to keep seeing it pop up to be confident that that's what's driving the picture. Yeah, great. Back to you, Cindy. How do you decide, we talked about diagnostic criteria, presenting symptoms. How do you decide who to treat? When do you make that decision? Does everybody need treatment or you can be selective in that? Again, they've also mentioned in the guidelines that if you meet the diagnostic criteria, for NTM pulmonary infection, it doesn't always mean starting treatment. So, however, there are patients where we don't delay treatment, and those are patients that have risk factors for progression. For example, patients with cavitary disease, they do tend to progress more, so we don't delay treating these patients. There's also, for those patients who are smear positive, on the AFB culture, they also tend to progress more. So we might consider treating those patients earlier. Other risk factors for progression are in patients with low BMI. That's found to be a risk factor as well. Of course, you have to take into consideration the severity of symptoms, you know, affecting the patient's quality of life and, of course, um, radiographic progression. But there are patients with, let's say, the nodular bronchiectatic type of disease. If they have minimal symptoms, minimal radiographic changes, there might be room to monitor them closely. Again, if we don't choose to, to treat, we have to monitor. Or if the patient doesn't choose to treat, because you know sometimes there are multiple things to consider, like comorbidities, drug side effects, we have to follow these patients closely. So So can you comment more on this watchful waiting approach, Joe? Like when do you, in your judgment, watch and when do you decide to kind of pull the trigger on treatment? Yeah, so I think kind of the default in a lot of our training, I think certainly on the pulmonary side, was that we're almost kind of taught to scare patients out of treatment. We're almost taught the line, treatment's worse than the disease, you know, it's not that big a deal, and we can we can watch. But with time, and as you get immersed in NTM, you realize the disease itself can be pretty bad. But I think 
what's important, watchful waiting is appropriate for a lot of patients, but I think what's important people who are put in that watchful waiting category is that the watching actually occurs. Too many people are just labeled watchful waiting, but then it's just waiting. They're told, call me if you have symptoms down the road, and they may not show up for five, 10 plus years, and then they'll kind of resurface. And at that point, they can have quite extensive disease because things can progress before symptoms change tremendously. And I think what I see often, as I've met many pulmonary and ID physicians really around the, the country while talking about NTM, is that oftentimes, you know, pulmonary will diagnose, NTM, bronchoscopy, whatever, they'll get a diagnosis, then they'll refer to ID and run away, you know, and kind of, you know, where ID is kind of now left on an island in a way. And I hear that from many of my ID colleagues where, you know, there's not much pulmonary support. So because ID is not really built to to watch minimally symptomatic chronic infections. And I think because I, the pulmonary predisposing factors are generally why most people have NTM, I think as a pulmonologist, you know, we should have, you know, really take the responsibility of the, the, the watching part. So people with minimal symptoms who are not low BMI, who don't have those risk factors of, of progression with smear positive or cavitary disease, think watchful waiting is an option for them. But having that discussion with them up front, here's what watchful waiting could entail, here's the pros and cons there, here are the pros and cons of treating now. And I try to have them make that decision because watchful waiting may be appropriate, depends on their preference. You know, I think as long as they are being monitored, the risks of, of watching are probably on the lower end, as long as they're not in that high risk factors. And we let the patients decide. You know, I have, you know, I've had a couple patients who've had really minimal disease kind of incidentally found, who I don't think any of us have felt uh, would warrant treatment, but the patients were so anxious about having this kind of even minimal chronic infection, they wanted to be treated upfront. So then I, I would treat a patient like that because because that is their preference. So I think, mm -hmm. you know, I think things are shifting to at least giving patients the option and having them understand what each route meant. And to not get too off topic, but an important part, you know, because I think the initial treatment starts with airway clearance. So especially whether it's mild disease or, or, or severe, trying to clear those airways of the secretions and, and, and mucus and bacteria that builds up in these stretched out airways is, is crucial. Because if, even if you're on the right guideline-based regimen for NTM, if you're not doing anything to try to mobilize those secretions, the antibiotics will be less effective. So my first start with all these patients is having them understand and get on a very good airway clearance regimen. Because airway clearance, you know, I think when it comes to bronchiectasis and, and these indolent infections, is a form of source control. That is a way to eliminate bacteria before touching a single antibiotic. Yeah, that's, uh, that uh, makes a lot of sense. But I want to come back to this watchful approach as to what do you watch for? What are you actually watching for when uh, when you are not treating? Just uh, watchful. And I'll ask Cindy what she watches for when she treats, but I'd like to hear from you when you are not treating, what do you watch for? Yeah, so we're looking to see what happens with their cough. Their, their sputum production, any respiratory symptoms they may have, and also what happens with their spirometry. So we do 
track their FEV1 usually every six months or so. So if that's starting to decline slowly, I would use that as, as something to discuss you do with CTs the patient. or x-rays? Or? So radiographs, we, I don't follow too closely or in close intervals because secretions can shift a lot. So it's very common to have fleeting nodular changes on, on CT scan, which can kind of muddy the picture. And that does not always correlate also with treatment failure or with disease progression always. So at least in close intervals. So I'm more concerned about their symptoms, how their weight, appetite, fatigue, and spirometry. So CTs, we, we sometimes check you know, every couple of years, especially if someone's pretty stable and we might extend their follow-up period. But CTs are not super reliable in, in, in following completely just because things can just shift based on how the secretions moved that morning. That's great. So, Andy, I know if you want to comment on that, but I really want you also to focus on what do you watch Mm-hmm. for with people on treatment now. Yeah, yeah so actually, uh, just what Joe had said, you know, I, I have, and to tell the story of a patient of mine, that she met the diagnosis, you know, for NTM pulmonary disease, she had MAC, and actually it's what Joe was saying, we had the conversation, you know, regarding treatment, what the side effects were, and at that time, she didn't have a lot of symptoms, she worked in the medical field, so she weighed the risks and benefits, and she said, I'd, I'd rather not go into treatment. And so, however, with the watchful waiting, I do make it a point that they have to do airway clearance, because actually that's that's the treatment. That's a form of treatment for me, and my pulmonary colleagues have taught me the importance of that. So I do partner, typically I like to partner with one of our pulmonary colleagues and to monitor the patient, and I make I really, really tell them how important it is that if you're not on treatment with drugs, that they are on airway clearance. And my patient actually later on had frequent exacerbations one after another. And I told her, you know, I, I think, you know, at, at this time we should consider that this is MAC causing it and that we should start you on treatment, which we did. She actually felt much better after that. So, and this didn't happen over a period of a month or two months. I watched her for a year, which which can, because sometimes these uh, NTM lung disease can they don't progress, like especially with MAC. Some can progress slowly over time, but I think most of them will progress and at some point need treatment. And so that's what I watch for. As Joe said, we don't do CAT scans like every three months, but we do do them periodically just in case some with nodular lesions have now cavitary disease. But we monitor, of course, their sputum. There's a few that might actually convert to, to negative spontaneously on their own, which doesn't happen often, but we do monitor their their sputum, and then symptoms are important. I think treatment of NTM is really an individualized approach. You know, it depends on uh, really a discussion with the patient because comorbidities, and sometimes we diagnose this disease in patients who are older. So that's something to, to consider. And how long do you treat? So typically, so for example, for MAC, typically the treatment, one, it just it's multiple drugs, right? And it's given usually for a year, 12 months after you've converted your sputum. So usually that may take a few months. So typically patients might be on treatment for around 18 months because it's 12 months from when they clear the MAC from their sputum cultures. Uh, for like Kansasii, the same thing. For abscesses, it's a, a little more complicated, I would say. Yeah. So t- uh, back to you, Joe, here. So when do you know that you're successful when, when maybe that frame it the other way, treatment failure? How do you define treatment failure in these patients? 
Yeah, well, in uh, 2020, the, the first NTM treatment guideline update came out since 2007, and it did emphasize kind of one kind of new point of focusing on that six-month mark. So people who are on guideline-based therapy should be getting monthly sputum cultures because that's how we see if we're successful, and that's when the clock starts ticking of duration of treatment, you know, 12 months from the initial negative sputum culture. But people, if they're still culture positive at six months, that's been found to be a very critical point in the journey in suggesting treatment failure on that initial guideline-based regimen, and that's what we'd call refractory MAC pulmonary disease or NTM, uh, whichever Whichever one. We often use MAC and NTM interchangeably because MAC is so common. But so people who are refractory at six months means it's been associated with worse progression of lung disease. So because they still have a lot more mycobacterial burden in their airways and less likely to really culture convert throughout the rest of that treatment plan. And so if people are still culture positive at six months, that is a, a pivotal point for me that says they would need a step up in therapy. And the guidelines uh, now strongly recommend inhaled liposomal amikacin to be added at that point to try to increase the odds of culture conversion. So, and the other thing that comes up when uh, the treatment is surgery, Cindy, you know, any thoughts on, do you ever refer them to surgery? When do you decide to refer them to surgery? Any thoughts on that? Uh, yes. So we have actually um, had few patients who have undergone surgery for, I would say most of them have been for MAC, but so when we refer them, it's usually, you know, when medical therapy has failed, they usually happens in the setting where they have a resistant mycobacteria or resistant MAC, particularly those that are azithromycin resistant. Referred patients typically with cavitary disease, particularly localized disease. So those are the patients we've referred to. Patients who are not tolerating medical treatment is one indication to refer them to surgery. And of course, those who have more serious symptoms like hemoptysis, so for more for symptom control. So those are the patients that we've referred. I would say that it's mainly for cavitary disease and for those who have localized disease that are not clearing maybe good candidates for surgery. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, that's, that's spot on. I really localized disease. And, and sometimes some people, if they have extensive disease but have a localized like big cavity that is, seems to be driving the picture and with adequate lung function, that's somebody who might be able to potentially uh, be evaluated to, to tolerate. And, and she brought up a, a good point of macrolide resistance, because that is a very big deal that I don't think is taught or spoken about enough, especially in the pulmonary circles. And macrolide is your most important antibiotic. It's successfully treating these family of bacteria and especially MAC. When MAC is macrolide resistant, so azithromycin is the most common one we use, it becomes, I think, harder to cure than like multi-drug resistant TB, I think. And so, you know, and this might be a little off topic on the question, but I think a, a big takeaway point I would add to really avoid macrolide monotherapy in the treatment of MAC, because then you're more likely to develop resistance, but also in our pulmonary patients who are, who are on macrolide monotherapy, whether it be for COPD or bronchiectasis, to always screen AFB cultures to really minimize the odds of developing macrolide resistance, because that is a 
huge correlation with treatment failure and really increasing the odds of needing a potential resection if you have macrolide-resistant disease. That's wonderful. That's amazing. I really learned a lot today. I know this is an area that many pulmonologists and even ID specialists are not very comfortable with unless they see it more and see more of it. So I thank you both for sharing your insights. I'm going to just maybe share with the, the audience my couple of takeaways that I heard from you today. One, we should have a high index of suspicion for uh, non-tubercus mycobacteria or uh, mycobacterium avium complex, MAC, in patients with lung disease, underlying lung disease, who have persistent symptoms or have frequent exacerbations and do not respond to therapy as you would expect to. Second point is sputum is the main way to make the diagnosis, and you have to do repeated sputum cultures. X-rays may not be able helpful if you really want imaging, maybe a CT scan is the way to go. And bronchoscopy is usually reserved for those who do not make sputum, because if you have mixed sputum, that's an easy way to make the diagnosis. And about treatment, really, it looks like it's a shared decision-making with the physician and the patient. There's plenty of side effects for these drugs, but also they work. So I, you know, I know there's a lot of maybe misconception out there that the treatment is worse than the disease, but really it's all about weighing risks and benefits. In some patients, definitely watchful waiting is the right approach. In others, really aggressive treatment is the right approach and that decision has to be made jointly with the, with the patient. Any other uh, thoughts you have before we close this out? Yeah, I'd say from a treatment standpoint, I think what I try to remind patients that most patients don't have the side effects and I think it kind of gets sold to them that they're very likely to have the, the most side effects we look for. But I've found in my experience that most patients do tolerate them and, and the ones who do tolerate you know, that journey is a lot easier because if they're not having daily side effects or symptoms, the duration is less stressful to them. And so that's also what I remind a lot of my colleagues that, you know, I think every patient, if they want, deserves a trial of treatment, you know, if they want to try. I've had patients, I mean, as old, 91 was the oldest I, I tried treatment on because that's what he wanted. You know, we went through everything and, you know, most people do not develop the side effects, but we talked to them about the, the, higher risk ones to be aware of uh, when they're on it. But they'd only know by trying, and many patients, especially ones who are referred to us who have had to talk to other doctors about NTM, are really surprised at how well they tolerated the treatment because they'd been told for so long that they're likely to feel terrible on them. Um, so it can be very rewarding to help patients go through that journey and kind of inform them and, and kind of be along by their side because it's very intimidating and scary. Cindy, we'll give you the last word. Um, we've certainly had many patients uh, that have successfully completed treatment uh, for NTM lung disease, as, as Joe has uh, said. Again, it's an individualized approach, but many patients uh, do tolerate it. You know, if they keep close communication with their physicians, we do help them through these side effects. There are certain maneuvers we can do that to help them tolerate the drugs better. And I, I do think that treatment is really a partnership with the patient, the physician, and of course, like for me, with my pulmonary colleagues. So. Wonderful. Thank you both again for joining me today. And thank you to our audience. Again, uh, this is your host, Rai Dwake, chairman of the Respiratory Institute, and my guests today where Dr. Joe Cabaza, who's a pulmonologist with a special interest in uh, non-tubercus mycobacteria and bronchiectasis, and uh, Dr. Cindy Miranda, who is an infectious disease specialist and leads the Delta group for granuloma in our team with this also special interest in non-tubercus mycobacteria. So thank you and have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Respiratory Exchange podcast. 
For more stories and information from the Cleveland Clinic Respiratory Institute, you can follow me on Twitter at tryedwakemd.